Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host for today, Father Miles Hickson, and I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Gisela Kreglinger to discuss the place of wine in Christian theology and spirituality. Uh, Dr. Kreglinger grew up on a winery in Franconia, Germany, and her family has been crafting wine for generations. She holds a PhD in historical theology from the University of St. Andrews and taught Christian spirituality and spiritual formation for a number of years before becoming a full-time writer. So Dr. Kreglinger, welcome to The Sacramentalist. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be with you, and I'm very excited that you are exploring the theology and spirituality of wine. That makes me very glad. Oh, man, we are excited to have you. And just before the show, we were having a, a discussion before we got started, and I didn't even know, Dr. Kreglinger, that you're part of the Anglican Communion. I, um, I, I, last I remembered, you were, you were in the Lutheran Church, and so it's so great to, again, have another Anglican on the show. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think a hardcore one. And I've been part of the Anglican Communion in Canada, where J.R. Packer taught me how to use the Book of Common Prayer. And I've been part of the Episcopal Church in Scotland. And now I'm back in Birmingham, sweet home Alabama in Birmingham and, um, you know, attend an Episcopal Church there. So the Anglican identity is... um, is something that I think is very beautiful and that I feel most at home in. Well, we're not going to argue with that on this show. We are going to wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) Well, like I said a moment ago, um, I'm very excited for today's interview. I'm a huge fan of your book, The Spirituality of Wine, which has influenced the way I think about food, drink, feasting in God's kingdom, and most of all, sacramental reality. So I think that our listeners are going to deeply appreciate our discussion today. So how about we just jump right into this? Yeah, Uh, that sounds great. Can you tell us about yourself and and maybe how wines played a role in your own life? Yeah, I think the reason that I wrote about this um, is because I grew up on a winery in Germany and I also grew up in the Lutheran church in the little village church and the two worlds of um, you know growing vineyards crafting wine having a winery with a tasting room and people coming and going all the time and also growing up in the church and being very involved in the church especially uh, my family was very involved in the harvest Thanksgiving service and um, we always provided the communion wine. Um, For me, these worlds um, belonged to one another, and it was only when I left and when I moved to North America that I felt this separation between um, the Christian faith and church and then the created world, and especially food and wine, and how important they are for our faith. And so I think that growing up experience where the two are married and have been married for generations and where a rich spirituality is still present, um, that really um, made me aware that I grew up with something that I felt like the world needs to hear. And in today's world, you do have a lot of really fantastic people in the wine world, and you do have fantastic people in the theology world, but you have very few people who are at home in both worlds. And so I felt, I think, a real sense uh, of vocation and calling to um, help 
the world, not just the theology world, but also the wine world, to see that there is a profound interconnection between faith and wine and food. For sure, for sure. Well, as with all things, we should begin by looking at Scripture. So tell us, how does the Bible use and present wine? I guess what I'm looking for is, is there a theology of wine or alcohol in the Bible? I know for many of us in the South, as you said, you're in Sweet Home, Alabama, and I'm here in heart of Dixie, Tennessee. Uh, alcohol is not something highly looked upon by the majority of Christian culture, but maybe the Bible says something different? Yeah, I think, and I think it's important to realize that this um, ambivalent relationship with alcohol in North America is a very recent phenomenon that only came really about in the um, you know, late 19th and then early 20th century with, um, there's a history to that, but before that, all the evangelicals, the pietists that came over to the Americas very much brought their um, wine and beer barrels. So that, that, that's, that they, there's a unique story and history to why there is, people have a reservation with that. But to come back to your question about wine in the Bible, um, it is really important to realize that the Bible references wine and wine-related themes nearly a thousand times. Wow. The story of wine and food um, is profoundly woven into the narrative of the Bible. I think to really understand the theology and spirituality of wine, we have to start at the very beginning in the creation account in the Garden of Eden. Um, the ideal vision of our life with God is in a garden with lots of fruit trees where humans live in harmony with each other, with God in the earth. And the Garden of Eden literally means the garden of pleasure and delight. We are to take pleasure in, in what God has created and what we can consume. And I think that's fundamental for understanding any theology of food, but also wine. Um, the theme of wine is um, introduced with um, Noah, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, I think we should sort of recall that there are nearly a thousand references to wine and wine-related themes in the Bible. That's huge. Wine is the most talked about food in the Bible. And it's not just sort of a theme that pops up here and there, but it's deeply woven into the story of God's redemption of his people. And it starts with Noah, when Noah you know, comes off the ark. The first thing he does, um, he plants a vineyard. He's our first vintner. When Adam was the first farmer, um, Noah was the first vintner. But it really um, comes to a very important place when um, Isaac blesses Jacob, and then in turn Jacob blesses his son Judah in Genesis, where wine plays an important part of the blessing that they pass on to their sons. And so wine has to be understood as a blessing from God. And I think that's fundamental for the theme of wine. Wine is a blessing from God. It shows us that God is benevolent towards us. He's generous. He wants to bless us. He wants us to be well and not just survive in this world, but to thrive and to enjoy an abundance of wine. And then both in Judges and in, in, in the Psalms, especially Psalm 104, 
wine um, is singled out as something that is to give us joy. Wine gladdens the human heart, the psalmist says. And I think that adds another dimension to understanding wine as a blessing and gift from God. It's to bring us joy. And I think that's really, really beautiful. When Moses comes with, with God's people to the promised land and he sends in spies to check it out, they come upon the valley of Haeschol, um, it's called the Valley of Grape Cluster. And they, the spies bring a massive grape cluster on a pole back. And that was a sign that surely this land is blessed by God. The abundance of grain and wine is a, is a sign that God has blessed this place. And so the theme of wine um, is part of God's story of redemption, of bringing his people out of bondage and giving them the promised land, a land abounding in fruit. And um, the prophets continue this theme, even when the Israelites are in exile, they promise that God will redeem his people. Um, he will bring them back and, um, and they will be once more able to work the land. Their spares, um, weapons of war are turned into pruning hooks. Um, tools for agriculture. I think that's a very, very important and powerful theme and also symbol that um, weapons of war become um, tools for agriculture and that an agricultural vision of God's redemption is very important and wine again is a central theme. Um, so when we look ahead to the Messiah coming, there are these promises when the Messiah comes, there will be an abundance of wine, there will be feasting and celebration, wine will flow from the hills. And that's a really, really beautiful vision of the latter prophets. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, and his first miracle is turning water into wine at a great celebration surely the people would have thought about the latter prophets that said there will be a messiah coming at a great feast and he there will be an abundance of wine and i think jesus fulfills those promises of um, um the prophets in him um the promises are fulfilled and it's not just about salvation as a personal experience it's about saving a people, but it's also about celebration and um, receiving from the earth the gifts of the earth and enjoying them. And that, so that theme continues. And one of them is that miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. It's not just a miracle in the sense that he physically transforms a really massive amount of water into wine. He also fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And then, of course, another really important passage is the Passover meal, when Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. And at the time of Jesus, the Passover meal would have included a long, long evening of um, um, celebrations and eating a lamb and bitter herbs and four cups of wine for each person were included in that and we forget about that that the Passover meal that we now that was then by Jesus reimagined and reinstituted as the Lord's Supper where he symbolically um, you know breaks the bread and shares the cup that was um, an extended meal um, and um, bread and wine played very important roles in that and connect 
um, the, the the whole celebration, not only to the whole narrative of um, the Israelites coming out of Egypt and being saved, and I'm celebrating that with a slaughtered lamb, and then later also with wine. It's the whole um, institution of the Lord's Supper that builds on this foundation, and Jesus singles out the elements of bread and wine to um, communicate um, his message of um, what the cross and his sacrificial death will mean. And he does so through bread and wine. And I think those are just very, you know, significant moments in the narrative, but they give us a glimpse that salvation is not detached from creation. It's not detached from food and wine, but salvation comes to us as embodied and communal people. And as we chew bread and as we savor wine, the presence of Christ and what he does on the cross is mediated to us. And that is amazing to me um, that, you know, often we can get um, a bit lost and think that's, you know, it's an idea. Idea that if we think rightly about this idea, then we're saved. But what the Eucharist invites us into is as we as embodied people gather and as we partake in that um, sacrament, as we chew the bread and as we smell and savor and swallow the wine, is that we commemorate and we are drawn into the great salvation narrative where the realities of what Christ did on the cross become present in our lives and how we are shaped and reshaped into the body of Christ that's redeemed and um, liberated to live the Christian life. That's powerful to me, mind-boggling. I mean, I could chew on that and um, savor this for the rest of my life. Yeah, for all eternity, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I've always found it amazing. Uh, I had a professor in college tell me, uh, speaking of the biblical narrative, we ate our way into this mess and we're going to eat our way out of it. And just seeing this beautiful inclusio of salvation history of yeah. kind of the bad feast in the garden to the feast of the Eucharist. And then, of course, the eschaton is, as you mentioned, depicted as a feast. I think of Isaiah 25 with wine still on the lees, so it's well-aged, which means it's really good. It's it's a uh, it's going to be good for enjoyment and merriment. And then the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, which, as you said, kind of Passover and weddings in Jewish culture were, they, they, they drew from similar traditions. So wine was in abundance, great food. So there's so much underneath the current of Scripture related to wine. And so how has the church taken these biblical themes then? I mean, we can't cover 2,000 years of history, but is there kind of a, a history of wine being understood by the church? Yeah, I think from the very beginning, you know, with the um, early church fathers, the uh, wine has always been a theme that they reflected on. And um, that happened from the very early um, beginnings of the church um, throughout history, uh, you know, sort of with a climactic moment with the reformers, but you know, afterwards as well. But not um, since the Reformation in any extensive way. Uh, the early church fathers had a fairly sophisticated understanding of wine in the Bible. And then the reformers, because they were on the defensive, you know, they were defending this and they, they were defending that. The way they approached that theme was also 
trying to protect it from people who said, no, we shouldn't drink any alcohol in both mm-hmm. uh, Jacques Calvin and uh, Martin, Martin Luther, as we say in the Lutheran <laughs> tradition, um, strongly affirmed wine as a gift from God and says, you may not take the gifts from God, from the people of God. And um, so there's a long, long history of writing, but especially the early church um, wrote quite a bit about that in helping people understand what the Eucharist was and the sacraments. Um, So they wrote a lot about that because once, um, you know, Constantine sort of made Christianity official, suddenly you had all these converts that wanted to become Christians and masses of people. And they had to sort of develop... um, a catechesis and a teaching and so they thought about it very carefully but then throughout the history of the church people said well what about the abuse of alcohol you know isn't it better to uh, forbid alcohol to prevent all of this damage and martin luther gave a really really great argument about that and said you know not that it's politically correct at all. He never was politically correct then, but he also would not be today. But I, I still like that. He's like, you know, if you want to say that wine is bad and you throw alcohol out, then, you know, look at all these women that tempt us all the time. We can't just throw them out. <laughs> wow, he would say that. Wow. Oh, dear. It was, you know, I can take that with a grain of salt. I grew up in the Lutheran tradition. And um, he and Katarina, his wife, actually had a very, very... Uh, you know, uh, he called Katarina uh, my lord. Mm-hmm. And Katarina actually um, was a Cistercian nun before she escaped the nunnery. And then she really became an entrepreneur because she developed, you know, a, a real, a, you know, a, a medium-sized agricultural business for the Luther family because of the hospitality that they had and needing to take care of themselves. So we find a very consistent reflection on the gift of wine drawing on scripture and affirming it as a gift and um, celebrating it as such and protecting it and it was only um, after the industrial revolution and in places like the united kingdom or the east coast of the americas where they couldn't grow vines at that time Um, on the east coast the weather was too humid and though the early settlers tried to grow uh, vines there it just didn't work Thomas Jefferson had a whole project on that and so what happened is that they had to import wine from Europe and once you have to import a good it always becomes a drink of the upper class and the everyday drink became strong spirits because in the early 19th century they started to build all these distilleries and the, the you know the the establishment of distilleries just sort of exploded in the early 19th century and then hard liquor became available on a wide scale and that became the common drink of the people and that is never a good idea never to have hard liquor be the common drink mm. it's very easy to get <clears throat> drunk on it it has very much stronger effects But then you had, um, for example, the Civil War, and you had the Great Depression, and people started to self-medicate with alcohol. And this is how these great problems with alcohol addiction came, and how um, men, you know, would take all of the money that they earned and take it to the taverns rather than feed and clothe their children. And so it was primarily women 
who um, who sort of became voices for the temperance movement and then also for the prohibition in the US. And so it was a very particular history where after the Industrial Revolution, they were able to produce, mass produce strong liquor and that became readily available. And that was devastating, um, mm-hmm. especially when a, a whole country faced a traumatic situation like the Civil War. Wow, yeah. And um, I think it's really, really important that you understand the particulars. And then they didn't have the theology or the capacity to reflect theologically on this and draw on the reformers, for example, in this particular regard. And so there was this development of a theology that had no biblical base. And um, I think that's important to understand that a lot of people that still argue that wine in the Bible is not alcoholic beverage when you look at those people in their arguments usually they have relatives close relatives parents grandparents that were alcoholics they created havoc so really those people are uh, families that suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome and they cannot think rationally about um, things like alcohol because for them alcohol is only a means of destruction Mm -hmm. and so I very much feel that we need to be very pastoral with these people and um, rather than then trying to convince them of you know wine in the bible was alcohol it's important to listen to the stories and it's there's a place for people to say you know in this context um, alcohol is probably not a good idea but the sick cannot determine the life of the healthy in the Bible is our ultimate foundation and how we develop any theology of food or wine or alcohol. And so ultimately the country needs to move towards healing their relationship with alcohol. And I see that here in the U.S. There are many initiatives where people now develop life around the table. They cook a good meal and they have a bottle of wine with it. It's not about getting drunk. It's not about you know taking a few shots of very hard liquor and you don't savor it. You don't enjoy it. Um, but there is a development in North America that people are rediscovering the table. They're rediscovering good food and how wine can add a dimension of joy and conviviality in... Um, savoring that enriches not only our meal but our conversations and our relationship to agriculture and i think this is what is happening in the country though there are still christian you know uh, communities that um, feel quite strongly that you shouldn't have the larger christian community even in the evangelical world has moved on and um, they cannot deny that first of all that wine in the bible was alcoholic and second of all, that it's not okay to not move towards healing. When we take the Eucharist and there is bread and wine, that means um, salvation and healing is not just for our souls, it's for our bodies and our relationship with food and wine. Mm-hmm. We often think salvation and redemption is about just the interpersonal between you know, us and God and between you know, each other, but it's also with the earth. It's with creation more generally, and it is with food and wine. And um, I think our relationship with food is just as much in need of healing as our relationship with wine. Wow, that was beautifully said. Thank you. I want to return to one thing you, you brought up, and that is just the fact that Jesus did institute 
uh, the, the sacrament of sacraments, right, with wine that has, as you just said multiple times, it had alcohol in it. This wasn't grape juice. There is a Greek word for grape juice, and he didn't use it, right? The scriptures don't use that word. It is wine that he's using in uh, in the Bible. And so, kind of, what do how do we how do we kind of wrestle and understand the the actual intoxicating effects? of wine when we're having a dinner party in the Eucharist even. So I'll give my personal example. Uh, the, the historic practice is to fast before you take, take the mass on Sunday morning. And as the priest, I consume the entire cup. So on an empty stomach by, you know, close to noon at this point, drinking a whole chalice of wine. Um, yeah, until I get some food from coffee hour, I feel the wine. Now I can just hear my Baptist upbringing saying to me, this is debauchery. You're getting drunk at the Lord's table. I don't think it's drunk, but there is this sense of maybe, I think you call it in your book, sober intoxication. So talk to us about that. How do we understand wine's actual effect on our mind, our mood, and our relationships? Well, in the Eucharist, um, for most people, they just get a small sip. Sure. Um, and priests sort of finish things off, as I understand it, right? Right. So my priest in my church, is uh, a recovering alcoholic so she actually doesn't drink the wine mm-hmm. and so you need to think about those things and you need sure. to accommodate those who are have a background with addiction that you you know offer grape juice to them but in general we only take a sip of wine in the eucharist so that's not my big worry but i think it is a, a skill to learn how to drink wine well and to enjoy alcohol and so i have this this little phrase um holy intoxication Mm -hmm. you have to drink quite a bit of wine to really get intoxicated right um but i think there are some rules and rhythms that you can develop not just as a person and as families and communities and cultures um you know, um, that will help. For example, in my culture, where we have developed our relationship with alcohol since Benedictine monks brought vines to Franconia in the 7th century. So we've had, you know, about 1,300 years of experience in, you know, figuring out how to do this. And I think though we have alcoholics in our communities, they're very few. I think we have developed some really, really good patterns with alcohol. And in my family in particular, where alcohol is our business, we produce wine and sell it. We have a rule that we don't ever drink alcohol before 5 p.m. on a regular day. That does not include Sundays because on Sunday, we have a lovely lunch, usually with a roast, and then we drink a glass of wine and then we have a nap in the afternoon <laughs> great. because when you have a good meal and one or two glasses of wine, it's a great idea to take a nap. But um, I don't drink more than two glasses of wine usually. I usually drink one glass or two glasses of wine, which amounts to about one hermana a day. That's sort of a Roman measurement and St. Benedict in his rule said that every monk is allowed one hermana a day. Hmm. The monks um, in the rule of St. Benedict, the most foundational document apart from the Holy Bible that shaped Western monasticism like nothing else, 
um, said every monk is allowed to have one hermana a day. They were allowed to have more if they had physical labor, if it was hot or if they were sick. Um, so it's all about um, enjoying things in moderation. Right. And I think one of the things that we need to get rid of is um, this paradigm between the virtues and the vices and the way food has been presented to us. You have either gluttony or you have temperance. But I don't think that's a biblical concept. I think you have gluttony and then you have savoring. Mm -hmm. Because temperance is also, it's only about you trying to control what you're taking in. You're trying to be measured. But um, nothing of that idea captures that concept of the Garden of Eden, of enjoyment and delight. Once you start to enjoy and to savor, you have to slow down. You can't gulp down a glass of wine and really enjoy it and savor it. The whole idea of savoring and enjoying means that you are slowing down. You only take small sips and you really meditate on it. So I think it's really important as we think about how can we develop a wholesome relationship with alcohol that we get out of this sort of straight jacket of gluttony and temperance and move forward to you know, in our culture, they talk about mindfulness. But I want to use the term of savoring and conviviality, bringing um, a group of people together, creating a lovely, uh, you know, um, table, maybe with a tablecloth and some flowers and making this into a festive occasion. And it's very hard to really just wolf things down and gulp down wine and, you know, abuse things when there's such a beautiful setting meant to lift our hearts to God and to each other. And then within that, have a, a nice meal. It can be a very simple meal and have some wine. And um, if you really want to explore wine, you have to start just taking a sip and sort of slowly move it around in your mouth. And then you swallow it very slowly. And then you think about it and you enjoy it and you sort of bathe in that enjoyment. And I think that's what we need to rediscover in these simple delights. And with that comes healing. Because a lot of people eat and uh, drink to sort of soothe something inside that should be soothed in other ways. Food and wine is there for nourishment and celebration and joy. When we are sad or stressed, we shouldn't wolf down food. But that's what we are taught you know and so I think it's a whole new way of envisioning how we eat and drink to nourish our spiritual lives as well as our bodies oh yeah very well said and then this the connections of all that you've said that brings us into kind of the eschatological reality of life with God for eternity that these are foretastes that the wine that we drink the good food we have that this whole experience is as Alexander Schmemann said, one of the last natural natural sacraments. It's the thing that people just understand that gathering around the table for even secular holidays like Thanksgiving in America is 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 special. It's unique. There, it's a channel of grace in a way that just scarfing down McDonald's and drinking a soda just will never never compete with. Yeah, and I think it's really about reclaiming our whole food culture as something sacred. Mm. I think that's what we need to do. And that means thinking about 
what kind of food we eat, how it's been grown, how to support our local farmers. And then, you know, we realize we probably have to pay a little bit more food, uh, more money on food and less on technology or, you know, whatever we like to spend our money on and um, see it as something sacred and take the time to prepare something that nourishes us. And, you know, this whole COVID crisis, one of the things it's done, it's forced us to slow down and to be at home and to really embrace home as a home. Um, to cook, to sit around the table, to enjoy meals, to talk. Obviously, it's also a hard place because, you know, all of our issues come to the table. And we have to learn how to wrestle through things. But that's a part of the table. It's part of, you know, you have to come together and you have to face those hard things. And you have to find ways to communicate and then come out on the other side and embrace one another with our differences, with our struggles. And then celebrate, nevertheless. Yes, very good. So I think you might have already covered some of this. Um, kind of the question I have is, how do we as individual Christians or churches develop a spirituality of wine? So kind of what are the practices someone could do or, or utilize to encounter God through wine or feasting? And you mentioned the way to taste wine, to savor, the way sitting around the table. What else would you add to that? Well, I, I think I've told you I've written another book called The Soul of Wine, and I have written about that more, more in a narrative style, how it's really about um, gathering around the table and developing a life of hospitality. And I think that's a really profound, well, some of us can start a little garden. I have started a little herb garden. Um, I don't have the capacity right now to do more, but even you know, growing a few little things and making it um, a point to be hospitable, but not in what I call the Martha Stewart syndrome <laughs> of having, you know, displaying a big show and having all these grand things. That's so stressful. And I think a lot of people here in this country feel like if we have people over, we have to produce this show. And that's not what hospitality is about. It's about staying simple. Um, you know, you can learn to create some very simple meals and um, invite people into the reality of your lives and your home and to be, you know, vulnerable and honest. And then, you know, um, buy a nice bottle of wine. Let that be a sacrifice and share that. And doesn't have to cost $50, but, you know, you, for a decent bottle of wine, you have to invest $20. And then you have to find a wine shop that can really pull out those, you know, thoughtful bottles for $20. But that will make the table special. But it, it takes time, it takes resources, and it takes grace to welcome people, not only that are like-minded, but also that are of different opinions. And especially, I think, you know, in, in today's world in the U.S., when things are so divided, it is so important, or my longing for this country is that people of the different camps learn to come together and be in conversation, because there isn't a lot of conversation that's happening. Um, I'm an outsider. I'm from Germany. I'm, I'm coming into this cultural moment. I'm like, um, I don't understand it. I have people <laughs> on both sides of the fence. I understand. I, I, I believe that you know both groups really care about their country, but it's we're in a very hard time 
And I think it's really, really prophetic to create a hospitable atmosphere where people from the different sides of the fence can come together. And once you've served them a good meal and once they've had a couple glasses of wine, I promise you that the conversations about these hard things will become easier. Mm. People will make concessions that maybe, you know, what they disagree on isn't quite as big and radical as they thought it would be. And I think food and wine have a real missional role. And a lot of Jesus' ministry was around meals. Think about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when Jesus said, hey, I'm Zacchaeus. I'm, we don't even know how Jesus knew his name other than him being a prophet. And then he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over to your house tonight and have dinner there and I'm surely surely they spent hours together Zacchaeus was wealthy so he probably had a really good wine cellar he probably went down and pulled out quite a few bottles of wine and um, had a great evening with Jesus and by the end of the evening salvation had come to that house mm -hmm. yeah and what a great parallel just between if God wants to encounter us as people at our most vulnerable at our most receptive of grace over bread and wine in the Eucharist, then that extends into our relationships with others in the world and how it can just take down barriers. So my one story of this is my wife and I, we, we traveled with friends through Europe a couple summers ago. And we, we ended up in Paris and we drove down the west coast of France and we went to the La Rioja region of Spain, which is a region of Spain famous for their wineries. And we stayed at this Airbnb and the man who ran it, it was, it was his own home and he lived on one side and the Airbnb was the other side. He, um, he didn't speak hardly any English at all. He actually called his daughter who spoke English and Spanish so he could translate through her on the phone. And she said, my dad wants you to see the wine cellar. Do you want to see the wine cellar? And he took us downstairs and his family, he's ne they don't sell their wine. Their family's been making wine for over 500 years. And he just pulled bottles off the shelf. We sat in his courtyard. His wife showed up who did speak English. And we just had this amazing conversation over hors d'oeuvres and wine that his family has been cultivating and making. And it was, it was a sacramental moment. It was amazing that people from across the world could sit down and just enjoy God's creation and talk about life and conviviality, as you said. And so I, I believe in the power of food, the power of wine. And so uh, thank you for, for sharing all of this with us today. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's a pleasure. It's a, it's a mission in this world. I think the whole world of food and wine was taken away from the people. I mean, wine for one reason, but then the whole food world has been hijacked. And, um, but um, people are discovering good food. Right. So and they want it. And that's a very, very exciting grassroots movement in the U.S. And I am thrilled about it. For sure. So... Would you be willing to tell our listeners what is the, the kind of $20, $25 bottle of wine that you go for when you go to the store? You know, I go to smaller wine shops where people are passionate about wine. I have a, um, I have a small wine shop that actually recently opened and two young Christians who want to make an impact on the community. I usually look for wines I have to say the affordable, well-crafted wines are from Europe. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is still too young of a country in their well-crafted wines. You know, they started 
35, 40, 45 dollars, unfortunately. So I recommend um, that you um, look at a region like the Alsace region of France and you can get some really, really beautiful wines uh, from, that, from that region. There is a sparkling wine, they call it a Cremant. It, it has the quality of a champagne, but it's only around $20. Um, we just gave that away as part of a wedding gift. And so I highly recommend that you go and look for a wine shop. Um, wine shops, small wine shops with people who really know about wine. It might take you a while to find them. And if you are not in a, in a town, you might have to, when you go to the city, sort of plan ahead. Um, you know, you, there are also online um, shops, but I, I believe that we need to connect with local communities. And I feel very strongly that we need to support family-run businesses um, rather than the big corporations. I think that's, you know, where people can make a decent living, and, but you also invest in your community. But I think those are the wines that I would recommend. There are some really, really affordable wines uh, from Spain, the Albarino, the white wine, and then you can get some really good Riojas. It's just you need help. If you don't know about wines, it's important that you find a good guide. And that's not so easy to find. But here in Birmingham, it's a very foodie and wine city. We have some really great wine shops. And um, so um, I, 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 I go to them. And then it's usually, for me, it's usually here in the U.S., if I can find wines from the Alsace region of France, to me, those are the best wines at the price point of about $20, which is what we usually spend on a bottle of wine. Wonderful. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kreglinger, for coming on the show today. Oh, it's a delight to be with you. I'm so thrilled that you're doing this. And um, it's, it's part of our mission in the world. We'll be much better witnesses of Christ um, with a celebratory and joyful spirit in sharing good food and good wine. Well, we come to a point in our show, as always, where we talk about what we've been into recently. And so I'll go first today. I have been into reading a book that was recently recommended to me. It's one of the popular patristic series books. Uh, I know some of our listeners will be familiar. This one is a collection of sermons by John Chrysostom on the cult of the saints. So just the development of all these sermons and how it grew up in Antioch and Constantinople that the church began to venerate the martyrs and the saints. And one of the themes just running through all of these sermons is as you participate in venerating the saints, you are participating in Christ's victory over death because these bones right? Relics and pieces of hair, kind of nasty stuff. These bones will live one day. And so I have found this fascinating and interesting that the, that the proclamation of the gospel is what led the church to its, its veneration and adoration of, of saints and of martyrs because of, because of Christ's victory over death. So that's what I've been into. What have you been into, Dr. Kreglinger? Um, well, I'm actually um, going back to teaching. I'm starting to teach a class at the University of Alabama on the spirituality of food. Oh, wonderful. So I am, um, you know, it's on food more generally speaking, but I am, I've been getting through a book on food, drink, and identity. And um, so I'm reading a lot of different sort of books about food and spirituality it's sort of an open I mean I come from a very Jewish Christian background but it's I'm very excited to talk about 
you know, to discuss this with students from a range of faith traditions. So I am very excited about that because um, food, more generally speaking, is such an important subject matter. And so that's what I'm digging in. I'm, I'm, I'm not moving on from wine, but I'm branching out to food more generally. And I'm very excited about going back to teaching. Wonderful. Well, that sounds like an awesome class. And if I was still in Alabama, I would find a way to come audit it. <laughs> well, we have to, we have to sort of half, um, you know, half the class partly online because of COVID. For sure. So half of the students will zoom in and half of the students will be in the class. So we'll be munching bread and then some of the students will have to watch us do that, but then they take turns. So it's just our reality right now. It is. It is. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you like what we're doing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and share us with your friends. You can email us with questions or feedback at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. Dr. Kreglinger, if people want to connect with you, how can they find out what you're up to and comment with you? Um, we, you can connect with me through my website, The Spirituality of Wine. Um, and I am offering wine pilgrimages again. Um, we are not doing one this year, but I, I'm just putting the flyer together for a wine pilgrimage next year. So if people are interested in that, they can just go onto my website, The Spirituality of Wine, and be in touch. And I will take you to France in Germany and trace the monastic movements that have created this agricultural paradise in Europe that made Western civilization possible and drink lots of good wine and eat lots of good food and um, celebrate together. Oh, that is wonderful. I will put that link in the show notes as, as well as links to your two books on wine. And I just can't say how much I appreciate you being on the podcast today. And I do hope you, dear listeners, will go and explore more uh, of these books, these works, these ideas about wine and food as we live into a sacramental reality through Christ. And now may the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.